0: All right. Thanks, team. Listen, it's time to get your Bibles out and open up to Luke chapter 16. If you normally use a digital version of this, know that they make printed copies of the Bible as well. So maybe you'll need to have that going so you can keep the live stream running. But we're in Luke chapter 16, continuing our series through the gospel of Luke. One more bit of uh, health work to do. Is if you want to download a PDF of sermon notes and CG questions that lives on nbcsj.org/live. So just from the homepage, if you click live, um, it's a little link underneath the English services going on. I want you to consider uh, some of the simple joys of childhood for a moment. And no matter how far back you have to go, some of you are living that right now. And so you won't have to go back that far. Some of you, it's been a while. But I want you to think about just some of the simple joys of childhood. And there's an innocence to childhood um, that you don't know you're living it at the time. But when you look back on it, it's there. I know for me that um, something as simple as wiffle ball and uh, being told to come home um, at, at dark for dinner and riding my bikes around with my friends and Uh, sports and forts and scabbed knees and all kinds of fun stuff comes to mind for my childhood childhood really is a time of innocence. Um, and yet it's also not, and let me, let me flip it now and have you think back to your earliest betrayal that you can remember. What's the earliest betrayal that comes to mind? Maybe you had friends that said that they had your back and then it turns out they didn't have your back. Uh, How about the earliest memory of being taken advantage of, of being swindled, bamboozled? You thought one thing and someone was tricking you and deceiving you. And what happens when that goes on is it makes you feel dumb, doesn't it? And something kind of breaks inside of you. The ability to trust now has been severed. And all of a sudden, you wonder if you should keep an arm's distance. So so your ability to trust diminishes. But what muscle gets strengthened in that time? It's the muscle that says, are you lying or not? Can you be trusted or not? So all of a sudden we begin to to wonder about that and and we lose a sense of innocence that that everyone around me can be trusted. We've all had shrewd people in our lives uh, that have uh, betrayed us, taken advantage of us. And we've all been shrewd with other people as well. I'd say that betrayal and dishonesty are incredibly hard lessons to learn from others. And it's really hard to bear the weight of that and the guilt of that. In fact, growing up has an immense weight to it. It's incredible joy. It's an incredible opportunity. But there's an immense weight to growing up. There's a loss of innocence. There's a waking up to what some people call the the real world. This is how the world really works. Parents, let me talk to you for a second. And grandparents, you go before us, so you've taught us these things. But parents, we have an incredible responsibility and privilege to train up our children. And one of the things that we do is we shelter them from fears and worries that they're not meant to be able to handle right now. And we prepare them for the time when that will come. One of the precious things we get to do as parents, it doesn't always feel like a gift, but it really is a gift that you get to walk children through this and coach them through this is to be there in their pain and their hurt and betrayal and to coach them in the ways of God and say, how do we let this not break us forever? How do we grow from this? So Jesus has this same concern for his disciples. He has he is in Luke shielding them. From certain worries and concerns and things that are too weighty for them that they can't possibly bear, uh, and yet he also is preparing them uh, and 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 uh, training them up for what they will face when he departs. And so he's growing them up, and he does so today with a story, one of his favorite ways to teach. Uh, For those of you who are logging in and and punching in some uh, some live chat things, get yourself ready, because I'm going to ask a question like I often do when you're all here with me uh, and you're going to get to to weigh in. Okay, so have those things ready. And I'm going to I'm going to look for your your answers in just a second. Uh, So dinner, uh, the Wednesday before last, we're sitting at family dinner and um, and Tegan had um, colors being attached to the days of, week, uh, of the week. And she was asserting confidently that Monday is clearly this color and Tuesday is that color and this is that color. And this is the way that uh, conversations go in our household sometimes. And it led to us all wondering what day of the week we are. So she flipped it from color to, "What day of the week are you?" And we began discussing it. And then we decided, I wonder if we could find out what day of the week we were born on. It turns out Siri knows that. Siri's incredibly smart, and so uh, so we asked Siri, and we found out who uh, w- which day of the week everyone was was born on. You know, outside the box creatives get us thinking in ways and stretch our brains in a way. In, in ways that that hurt us. When Tegan came and asked me, she said, Dad, what day of the week are you? Honestly, it had been a long day. I was just trying to eat my dinner. And I told her, I was enjoying the conversation. I said, I don't want to answer that question. I don't. I don't want to think that way. And then, of course, I ended up giving her an answer. Raising an uber creative helps stretch and hurt our brain. And Jesus was an uber creative. He attaches new meaning to familiar things. He gets us thinking in ways that initially when I go, I don't want to think about that. That's too hard. Just give me the answer. And instead, what Jesus does is he, he gets us involved in the process. And that's exactly what's going on with this parable. This parable will hurt your brain. Well, one commentator I read, in fact, several alluded to this, that this is the most difficult parable in Luke. Possibly one of his toughest that he ever told. So here's the question that you're going to weigh in with. Ready? When I say the word shrewd, what animal comes to mind? So begin typing your answers. Give me answers. And this is great because I don't have to call on you. We don't have to wonder if we hear you. You just chat away. Pull some up. I'm going to read some answers. i want to see what you guys are thinking. What animal comes to mind when I say the word shrewd? Okay. Now, for a certain generation, while you're typing that, um, let me give you one more. How about if I have the word wily? OK, what animal comes to work to, to, to your mind when I say the word wily? So I'm going to I'm going to begin looking for these and just kind of seeing what what comes up. Um, it's interesting. Immediately. Some of you are like, yeah, there's animals that immediately attach themselves to this word and and whole other ones that that, that don't. OK, e coyote right here in this room. Thank you, Rob. You got that one. Um all right, keep going with this. Let me give you one more. What if I say the word naive? If we take the word shrewd on the one hand, what's its opposite? It might be gullible, it might be naive. So how about that? What what animal is naive or gullible? What animal would you consider shrewd? And this is just popping back and forth here. Okay, we have all kinds of things. We have symbols coming on, that's impressive. Um, my dog, I like that, thanks Josh. Um, so Jesus, Jesus gives us this memorable instruction. Okay, multitask. Keep writing your little animals, but I'm gonna keep going. Jesus gives us this memorable and really portable instruction found in Matthew 10:16. He says this: be shrewd as snakes, right? And innocent as doves. What comes right before that is Jesus telling people, human beings, that he is sending them out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Now I said those things really slowly so that your brain could fill in. You already knew the answer. Shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Do you see how portable that truth is? Jesus loves us so much, he boils uh, truth down to little pocket-sized things that we can carry around with us wherever we go. Most of you didn't try to memorize those scriptures. You just know those scriptures. Sheep, wolf, snakes, does. Quite a little zoo ensemble, right? And yet those ideas pack a lot of truth in there that we can, we can act on. With that as an intro, here's what I want to do. I want to look at um, this story that Jesus tells, Luke chapter 16. And the way I have it broken out in your notes, um, just so that you can kind of follow along, is I want to first start by looking at the setting of the story. When you take Luke 15, which we covered now two weeks ago, because we hit pause last week, um, two weeks ago, we looked at Luke 15, and Luke 15 uh, produces some of the most famous and accessible stories, uh, even for those outside of the church or the Christian faith. The prodigal son, who doesn't know that story? Luke 16, the whole chapter, produces some of the most confusing and least accessible stories Jesus told. In fact, I would say this, the story we're going to look at, the parable we're going to look at today um, is not a confusing story. It's a confusing application. What are we supposed to do with this, Jesus? And honestly, it's like me sitting there at dinner going, I don't want to think about this. Someone just give me the answer. And yet if we engage with it, it will it will grow us as Jesus wants us to. How about Luke uh, chapter 15 of Luke, three parables about lost things, right? We have the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons, the younger and older brother. Luke 16 are three parables on good stewardship. So it's how to make good use of what isn't lost, but sitting right there in your hands. How do we steward, particularly our possessions and our money, the things that are right in our hands? If chapter 15 is talking about the riches of relationship, chapter 16 deals with material wealth. Now, what Jesus is doing this week is he's talking directly to his disciples. What's going to happen is I'll give you a little preview for next week. But next week, he's going to shift his attention to money hungry Pharisees. Okay, So this setting, the setting of this story is speaking to, G- to, to, to Jesus' followers, his disciples. Just a reminder, but disciples are those who, in the case of the disciples of Jesus while he was here in bodily form, um, left everything to devote themselves to not only being with Jesus, which if you're with Jesus, there's a change of scenery. Why? Because he's on the move. What's Jesus doing specifically right now? He's on his way to Jerusalem. Okay. So he's traveling. He's on the move. So there's a change of scenery when you're, when you're with Jesus. But it's not just, uh, devoting themselves to being with Jesus, but disciples also devote themselves to be like Jesus. What that implies is this. It means that his values and his ways and his heart and his mind become the disciples. It means all kinds of inner life change of scenery going on, right? So those of you who've been Christians for a day or for a decade know this, that there's literally a change of scenery sometimes when you follow Jesus uh, because you, you switch jobs, you move neighborhoods, you move around, and you go places you wouldn't normally go. But far more real and far more vast is the change of inner scenery and the change of the inner life that goes on. And this is the process of sanctification. It's Christ forming himself in us. What a promise uh, to, to, to cling to. So here's the tie-in word. What ties in Luke 15 to Luke 16? Not a lot, but there's one word that's used really, really specifically in both places, and it's the word squandered, or some of your translations say wasted. What was wasted or squandered in chapter 15 from the famous prodigal son story? It's that the son squanders the wealth of the father. In Luke 16, we have the same exact word being used, and it's a dishonest manager who is squandering his boss's stuff and wealth, the owner of it all. OK, so Luke 16. Uh, let's get into the story. That's sort of the background. That's the setting. We're going to now look into the, the story itself uh, in, in prying open parables. How do we discuss parables? How do we look at parables? Here's a couple things to keep in mind. Often there's one major point. And then there are some subordinate smaller points. One of the things we have to be really careful of is there's a lot of ways to read tons into parables that may not be there. Okay, That's why it's really important to hear it. How would first century people, individuals, have heard this story? Let's start there and kind of work our ways out. One of the things that's interesting is there are aspects of the story that should not be read into. Let me give you some examples. In one parable, God is seen as a thief in the night. In another parable, God is seen as an unjust judge. He casts himself in some suspicious ways. Now, it doesn't mean that God is all of those things that that character uh, possesses, right? He is using it to teach a lesson. He's attaching new meaning, new realities to current things that we see and look about. So that's really important as we read into this to, to, to look at this. So Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to go down to verse 9 and hit pause. Okay, here we go. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you turning the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And, And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. I told you that's going to make your brain hurt a little bit, Right. The rich man in the story is God. He's the owner of it all and he has this manager. What's the manager? The manager is the one who, who is a steward of the possessions that God, the rich man, owns. Now here's the surprise. We have the setting, we have the story. Here's the surprise of the story. There's a turn in the story and where the turn is, where the surprise is, that's where you most often find the lesson, okay? This is what prompts the why, What's the surprise in the story? It's that the master, when he finds out, he commends the unrighteous manager. He applauds him. He praises him. Now, some of you who grew up in church and grew up with a high sense of morality, you're a little bit more like the big brother in the prodigal son story. And that big brother voice in you says, what? How can this possibly be? How is it that the guy that's been cooking the books gets praised And cast in this light. This goes against everything I've been taught. How can this be? What is Jesus getting at by casting this guy in this example? I want you to take your mind back to Luke 15 for just a moment. A story we all know really well. You probably don't have to turn there. But what is the surprise twist in Luke 15? The surprise twist, and as people hear this in cultures from around the world, this is the part that that causes them to, to gasp. It's that the son doesn't or the father doesn't just tolerate the prodigal son coming home, he celebrates the prodigal son coming home. In fact, he throws a lavish, we would say the, the 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 big brother would call it wasteful, a squandering of resources. He throws a lavish party for the prodigal son. That's the twist. That's the surprise, right? And at that very point is the point God is trying to clarify our misunderstanding about what God is really like what 's luke fifteen talk about he 's saying that when sinners turn back to god there 's a party thrown for them it 's not just that God will tolerate you at arm 's distance it 's that He will welcome you in as a beloved child that he 's been looking for and longing for that 's the correction that 's the misunderstanding now we 're shifting to material possessions and wealth. What Jesus is doing is he wants to correct a misunderstanding that is going on about what we are thinking about our earthly stuff. Christians throughout history have two different extremes um, in, in, in dealing with their earthly goods. Uh, we can read about Christians who chuck all worldly possessions and all wealth and just deem it all as, uh, as, as not good. And so they, they, they leave it by the wayside. And, uh, we see people who get seduced to worship wealth, take comfort in wealth, lean on wealth and possessions and serve the stuff of earth and abandon their master Jesus. Hear me clearly. Both of those are not the right path. Those are two extremes that the Bible really explicitly speaks against. Jesus is correcting us, saying neither of those is correct. Steward well the the possessions and money that you've been entrusted. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. Wake up. And here's the significance. He pulls out of the story to tell us really plainly what the lesson is, okay? So moving on in your notes, I have now the, the significance or the substance to the story. Here's the punchline. Let me read it in a different translation. Somebody's hearing it in a different translation helps. Here's New Living Translation, verse eight. The rich men had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, you will, uh, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Jesus is cluing his disciples and he's cluing us in to, to not just memorize rules Blindly put our head down and walk zombie-like through this life, thinking we have it figured out. Instead, the picture is this. Heads up, eyes on Jesus, follow him closely. I promise you if you live life that way, your Christian journey will surprise you often. Jesus will take you in paths and directions that you don't, uh, that that don't naturally come to your mind and even those around you aren't naturally thinking about. Jesus is leading and he will surprise you. The same Jesus who says be blameless also says we're to be, uh, we're to be fishers of men. Now let me give you a, a thought. Your idea of blameless may never involve because of your training, because of your temperament, all those things. It may never involve sneaking up on people. But if you're a fisherman or a fisher woman or a fisher child, if you're a fisherman, you know all about the tactics of fishing and who you're fishing for and the type of fish and time of day. And there's a lot of scheming and strategy that goes on. And if you just have this sensibility about what blameless looks like, you'll be a terrible fisherman. Why? Because it involves sneaking up, involves trudging through things that are uncomfortable, involves sitting patiently, which may not be your forte. So the same Jesus who says, be blameless says, fish for people, figure out how and what lures them, then catch them into the wonderful arms of God, right? So there's all kinds of things that, that God wants to do. Jesus is wanting to redeem shrewdness for eternal purposes. Uh, Eugene Peterson tells of a time that he's visiting uh, one of his congregants at, at John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. He comes back and realizes that he's locked his keys in the car. And in his book, Tell It Slant, um, I'll pick it up from there. He says this, I was stumped, hands in my pocket, wondering what to do. Just then a young boy, an African-American, about 10 years of age, came up to me and said, something wrong, mister? I said, yes, I locked my keys in my car. He said, I can help you. He took out a piece of wire from his pocket, and in 30 seconds or less, he had the door open, reached in, and handed me my keys. I said, I'm sure glad I was here when you showed up. He grinned and said, is it worth a dollar to you? I reached for my wallet and praised him. A dollar? It's worth two dollars, and handed him the money. As I drove away, this Jesus story, this one we're talking about, that has puzzled and even scandalized so many generations of readers A crooked manager praised for an act of dishonesty, a rascal commended for being a rascal, surfaced from my subconscious imagination. Wasn't this what I had just experienced? This streetwise boy of Baltimore's inner city at 10 years of age, an old Row, entering locked cars and asking for whatever he could pick up for spending money, using all his skills at picking locks to stay alive in this bare bones environment and now praised by me for employing his questionable expertise and prowess in creative survival. Eugene Peterson wrote a translation of the Bible called The Message. Here's how he translates sort of this punchline passage, verse 9 in Luke 16. He says, I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. Not just zombie-like walking through life, trying to follow the rules. It's not the life Jesus calls us to. The shrewd in you needs to be converted or it needs to be developed, both for good. I recognize that some of you are more naturally dove-like and some of you are more naturally snake-like. Jesus wants to redeem and develop those pieces in you. Isn't this what conversion is all about? Right behind this screen is our baptistry. That's where people get dipped for Jesus. It's it's, It's baptism. And getting dipped in the waters of baptism symbolizes a cleansing of your sin. It does not symbolize a washing off of your personality and your makeup. You come up new in your identity and in your future and in your power, but your conversion is all about God bringing back bringing you back to your original glorious design. You were dreamt up in the mind of God from eternity past. Think about this. There's no one like you. Long before your parents loved you, your friends knew you and hung out with you, uh, be- before teachers or spouses knew your name, God knew your name and God created you and God wired you a certain way. And your conversion is about asking you, growing you and doing things that aren't naturally you or taking your natural sin bent and turning it for good. I want you to look at this uh, title image that's behind me for a moment, the Taming of the shrewd. And what you see uh, boldly and clearly is a snake heading in a certain direction. I, f- I know that freaks some of you out. There's a shock value there. What you may not be able to see is right along here is a very, very faded um second snake. It's really the same snake. And the teaching here is this, this snake did a 180 and the old snake is fading away. The old picture of what that snake looks like is fading away. This snake is now heading in God's direction, in the the direction of good. He's now living a new story in a new direction. This is a picture of what a Christian is all about. Back to our text. Let me get the last few verses in. In verse 10, it says this. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you are taking notes and you want this sermon in a few short words, write this down, type this out, memorize this. Ready? Here's the central truth. Be shrewd without being rude and faithful without being fearful. Be shrewd without being rude and be faithful without being fearful, all on the side of good. Do you know what shrewd can be? Shrewd can be a cloak for worldly ambition achieved in worldly ways. We can have people in our midst who, in the name of shrewdness, are really just advancing their own snake-like kingdom. But here's the other side of the coin. Faithful can be code for hiding out in the Christian ghetto and never engaging, head down, following the rules, being in community, and never developing shrewdness for the sake of the kingdom. So we are neither to be uh, fearful or to be faithful. We're not to be rude in our shrewdness. We're to be innocent in it, but we're to be shrewd in scheming nonetheless. I think Jesus is actually modeling what he's teaching by this very story. He's being shrewd by how he casts the characters. He casts a dishonest manager, hardly the one that we would invite over parents to say, hey, kids, look at this person. We're gonna have them over and ha- follow this career path. Not the person we would point to for that. And yet Jesus is shrewdly showing us that all truth is God's truth. Even the wicked person um, who is trying to build a personal kingdom has things to teach us if we're humble enough to learn and be watchful if we can filter the lesson through a redeemed mind we say god help us distill and capture what this person is doing and now help us use that for something that's good and kingdom building and loving christian you have a new identity in jesus at the very least you're this you're a steward and you're a servant 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it requires, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Realize that the way that we handle our uh, worldly wealth is both an indication and a test of our discipleship. Let me say that again. This is really key, and we're going to get to this in our our community group questions this week. Realize that the way we handle our worldly wealth is both an indication and a test of our discipleship. Finances and possessions are one of the key areas where discipleship is lived out. Let me give you a negative cautionary warning from First Timothy 6, 9 to 10. Timothy 6, 9 to 10 says this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through the cravings, it is through this craving, that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pains. Do you hear that there's huge caution in our worldly wealth? And yet, I want you to think of the other side of this. Think of David and Joseph and Job. Go to the New Testament and look at that businesswoman, Lydia, right? And these are individuals who used their wealth for good. Think about the apostles that, after Jesus left, turned the Roman Empire upside down. How about Martin Luther, who who toppled a a deceptive, powerful religious regime? How about William Wilberforce, right, who used his position and his wealth and his status and his voice and all the energy he could muster, even though he was a sickly man, to abolish the slave trade in England? All in the name of God for good. Church, this is us. How do we take our gold, our status, our energy, our smarts to outwit, outlast, and outplay those around us? Community groups, here's your challenge. Write out a sentence describing or a paragraph describing the impact that Neighborhood Bible Church would have on this community, on this city, on this region. If all of us were living this out perfectly. And let that be held up as a a vision to strive for. I wanna close my time with this. What's the significance for us? The significance for us is this. We We are rebelling against the rebellion. We live in a world that's in rebellion to God. So how do we wisely, shrewdly, innocently before God rebel against the rebellion? Disciples of Jesus not only take on Jesus's agenda And methods, but, but also his, his methods. Jesus was a submersive, subversive, (laughs) submersive would mean he scuba dives. Let me say that again. Jesus was a subversive rebel and a renegade, but it had many nuanced sides to it. Think about this one line we've looked at before. My time has not yet come. What's that all about? That's Jesus being shrewd, right? He's not being dishonest. He's not being, he's not being, uh, you know, sinful. He's saying, my time has not yet come. And so we might say he's playing his cards close to his vest. He's he's scheming for good. He's scheming in love for other people. It's code for the fact that he's keeping things underground, so to speak. The kingdom of God still speaks this way. We take up the agenda and the methods of Jesus. Most people have no idea what's really going on until it hits them, and it's too late. Think about how shrewd these things are that we've already looked at. Seeds and yeasts. Yeast. There's a video you can watch on that. Seeds and yeast and a baby born in a feeding trough and Jesus on a cross. All these things are shrewd. They look one way. They're really something far different. And God's knitting this whole tapestry together. Church, can you remember a time, those of you who've lived a lot longer than I have, can any of us remember a time when the worldwide conversation has been so focused on one thing? Can we remember a time when so many things have been shut down? Here's what I want to say about this. We're to set our minds on the things above. We're to set our minds with spiritual eyes on what's really going on. So think about how much tangible need and opportunity there is right now to daily meet the needs of those around us. God never gives us the wrong address. You live where you live for a very specific reason. We're on a mission of turning strangers into neighbors. What better time than to check in on them and see how they're doing? Maybe for the first time, you'll exchange cell phone numbers so you can begin to text one another. Do it in the name of love and be wise about it. All of us, this is the day to engage. I wanna have you turn in your Bibles or flip to your Bibles or punch to your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter five, and we'll start in verse 15. And I'm gonna just give you five rules of engagement um, that are are steps to living innocently but shrewdly. And and there's a whole lot more to say on this, but we'll stop with this. As you're turning there, let me just just comment on this. Um, We're in an election year. So in the political landscape, um, shrewdness is a must. Don't be gullible. Don't just believe what you hear. Um, There are things happening around you So grow in your shrewdness or have your shrewdness not devolve into cynical, fleshly life under the sun, uh, joining of a rebellion that you don't know. Be shrewd. Be thinking about that. How about in the digital world and technology and entertainment and storytelling? Is there room for shrewdness from Christians? Yes. Abundantly. Yes. How about in your workplace? Those of you who work Uh, have this tension ever before you? How do I please my shareholders? And how do I please the one who owns it all? And there's a tension to that. There's a shrewdness that needs to come from that. Those of you students, I don't care if you go to a, a Christian school or a secular school, but particularly those who live in a secular school, how do you submit to God and to potentially ungodly teachers? Teachers that might make a mockery of your belief in God, all while fishing for people as Jesus taught us to do. Uh, there's room for shrewdness in our family. There's room for shrewdness in our neighborhoods. All right, let me read Ephesians 5, give you these five things, and then we'll close with some psalm. Ephesians 5.15 says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I want to take that passage and I want to just over I want to show you how in two simple verses the Bible cross teaches. And i want to overlay that on Jesus's teaching here about about uh, how to how to have our possessions and use it for godly good. OK, so if you're taking notes, uh, these are these are five ways sort of rules of engagement from our passage in Ephesians. Here's number one. Uh, pay attention and seek wisdom from above. Pay attention and seek wisdom from above. Some of you are more naturally those who pay attention. If you're not that person, make friends with someone who pays attention. And if they're sounding the alarm, clue into that, okay? How about seeking out wisdom from above? I say that because of this. James talks about that there's a difference of worldly wisdom versus spiritual wisdom. So go check that out in James chapter three. So number one is pay attention and seek out wisdom from above. Number two, here we go. Strive for the best use. Strive for the best use. Do you see that you have a major part to play in this? You have been entrusted with it. It's actually a responsibility and a burden, but a joyful burden to receive a paycheck. Did you know that? To have health, to have any kind of status or position. How are you to use that? Make the best use of it. Don't just give to the first thing that that you see. Settling for good or bad in using your money or your possessions is not good enough. Settling for good or bad is not good enough. It's not nuanced enough. In fact, I think settling for good or, good or bad leads to status quo living and wasted wealth. I'll tell you where things get really difficult. Dark and light, pretty easy to see, but shades of light, and really wrestling with the Lord God, where do you want me to invest my money? Where do you want me to invest my stuff? Who am I supposed to give this to? Who am I supposed to share this with? There's a lot more nuance going on there. And there's a lot more uh, strategy to grow in for the church if we really strive for the best use, not just of our time, as Ephesians is specific about, but striving for the best use with our possessions. Number three, days are evil. Write that down. Days are evil. What does that mean? It means this, that much is at stake with how you do this. Don't blindly go on with how your neighbors are doing. Don't let your pastors or your Christian friends or your or your earthly tradition handed down to you dictate how you do this. God has entrusted you with resources. You, Christian, are to be in loving communication with your father, saying, Jesus, lead me in this. So days are evil. Much is at stake, and you are in a battle. Here's number four. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. That means that possibility exists. Even for Christians? Yes, even for Christians. Go study Proverbs and study history for the various ways that people are foolish with money. Okay? Proverbs and just current history and past history. These are the ways to be foolish. Avoid that. Stay away from that. Here's number five. Ready? Study scripture, pray, and walk in community so that as this passage says, you can understand what the will of the Lord is. Study scripture, pray, and walk in community. Other people should be doing that and affecting you with that, but no one else can do that except for you. You are called to don't care your age, education level, how much it's comfortable, how much you like, how much, how good you are at it, how practiced you are. Study scripture, pray and walk in community to understand what the will of the Lord is. All right. I'm not going to invite the band up because we can't we can't do social distancing with that. So there's me a little bit of a lag. But let me just um, let me just close in prayer. And before I do that, let me let me give you a couple of examples that just rolled to, to, to my mind about shrewdness in, in, in past times. Right now, the persecuted church, they have this exercised muscle of shrewdness that we can learn from. We can pray for them, but we can also learn from the persecuted church. That is places in the world right now where it's illegal to be doing online or in person what we're doing right now. Okay. here's the second thing. As we've gone through international adoption, I watch shrewdness at work. I watch Christians on the ground navigating um, different kinds of rules and regulations, all in the name of love, scheming in the name of love. And it's a beautiful thing to watch as we've seen Foster the Bay branch from one community. Every time you see, by the way, a map showing the current cases, recognize, hear me, that every one of those counties that you see on your news screen are Foster the Bay counties. Uh, with the exception of two that are scheduled to become foster the Bay counties this, this year, that's a powerful thing to flip the script and pray about and think about. But foster the bay has had some incredibly shrewd and innocent people working on its behalf to cause its, uh, its change. Um, We have teachers in our congregation uh, and stories from around the world where secular schools and universities are infiltrated by people who are rebelling against the rebellion in the name of Jesus. It's a powerful thing to watch. And finally, in entertainment and politics, look for those stories. There's incredible stories of shrewdness to emulate and to learn from. Let me give you a preview of next week. I'm going to read it in the message because Jesus turns his attention from disciples to money hungry Pharisees. Here's what it says. Verse 14, when the Pharisees, a money-obsessed bunch, heard him say these things, they rolled their eyes, dismissing him as hopelessly out of touch. So Jesus spoke to them, you are masters at making yourselves look good in front of others, but God knows what is behind the appearance, what society sees and calls monumental, and God sees through and calls monstrous. God, we look for your wisdom in these days. We look for your heart uh, and your methods and your agenda. God, I thank you so much for every single person who's watching online, typing in, and God, just the sense of community. We miss each other. We miss seeing each other, and that in and of itself is such a great sign, God. It it highlights the riches we have, how sweet it's going to be when we all get to get together and not bump elbows but give a, a meaningful embrace um, and just and just loving hellos, God. I pray Your blessing on everyone who's singing at home right now. God, as we sing right now, help us to sing with gusto in our homes. Amen.